Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1953 film Tokyo Story. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm uh, doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this one's an all-timer. I mean, I'm not breaking any news to people. This is this tops lists all over the place. Uh, but you always worry when you watch films like that. Is like, is the is am I going to get it? Am I going to get what people see? This lived up to every inch of hype that uh, that this movie has uh, in terms of people, you know, the the sight and sound list and things like that. Um, I was utterly blown away and can't wait to talk about it. Uh, let's just start with what is your history with this film with Ozu? Yeah, uh, I, I wish I had a longer history with Ozu. This is this is this remains the only Ozu film that I have actually watched. Um, my history with Ozu is. Um, I put him on the syllabus when I started teaching uh, my film course back in 2009. That would, that would have been the first time that I watched Ozu. And it was because I wanted, I mean, I knew the film by reputation. Uh, and also I wanted the syllabus to have a little bit of uh, global diversity. So that's, that I would have, I've never seen it in the theater. I saw it on video in 2009. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting because I mean, this is the only thing I've ever seen from him. And I, I've always, you know his 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 name is is you know when you talk about Japanese filmmakers you know he's in the big three and I in in my mind and this is probably because of uh, my Western influences like I always assume like well Kurosawa was really the great one right and the other <laughs> wow <laughs> um, I, I so deeply want to see more of the things he made uh, from from watching this so uh, to just talk about some of the credentials of this film this film is number three on the 2012 sight and sound list the crit or the critics poll Mm -hmm. um and number one on the director's poll and i really get why this is number one on the director's poll i have to imagine this is a movie that directors see and they just think how do i make my tokyo story how do how do i blend um uh formalism like 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 filmmaking and formalism with simplicity of story with universality of story uh i, I just imagine there are filmmakers who who chase this yeah and I, and I think the other reason you you want to love it as a filmmaker is um it is it, it is truly an auteur uh performance i mean you you look at this film and it has the stamp of ozu's personal style so firmly imprinted on it, there's no doubt that this is a film in which he, as the filmmaker, was was in control. And it's also a film, and we'll talk obviously more about this, it's also a film that has such a distinctive style uh, and a style so different from Western filmmaking that it immediately uh, puts itself puts itself in a very distinctive category. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, so I, I've talked on this podcast a lot about films that sort of blow me away and then films that I love because they make me want to make movies. I, after watching this, I, I watched it here at Bethel and I took a walk around the halls and I couldn't help as I walked down the halls, but stopping and framing and crouching down and being like, there's the shot. Like, like that's where he would put the camera. And I just, I couldn't help constantly doing that because I just was so enamored by the way the way that this movie looks. So it's interesting to think about this film in relation to the last two movies we watched. Mm-hmm. So two films ago, we watched Playtime, which is maybe the most formal film I've ever seen in terms of it almost, I mean, it doesn't really have plot. It barely has character, but it's all about the formalism of, of, of how the movie's made and how that can, how that conveys ideas and thoughts. And then last week we watched secrets and lies, which is this intimate family story. And I feel like this movie, and I don't know if you did this intentionally, but this movie fuses those two things so well, where it is, we could have an entire conversation about filmmaking and formalism, or we could have an entire conversation about, family story and we're going to try to do both was that was that was that by intent or did it just fall into place uh, it, uh a little bit of both uh certainly the uh, the connection to playtime was pretty deliberate the uh, the connection to secrets and lies it kind of it came about because uh of mike lee saying that tokyo story was one of his um one of his all-time favorites and and then it became quite apparent to me as i rewatched tokyo story how mike lee whose method is very different uh, there's nothing in common between. Well, actually, there is a little bit of commonality. Both both of these directors like to let conversations go on for quite a while. 
Uh, we talked about that with secrets and lies, and that's certainly the case, case here. And they're both, of course, completely interested in the quotidian, in the ordinary life, and how much that reveals. So, yeah, so yeah, it was, it was 80% deliberate. Well, it's, in, it's interesting because as I, as I was writing notes for this, I kept thinking, oh, if you were going to do a double feature, this, fe- this pairs with so many movies to say mm. like, well, this and this would actually go really well together. So we'll, yeah. we'll talk about those as we go through, because I kept thinking, I think this filmmaker is in conversation with those two. I think this, whether it's formal or whether it's story or ideas or, or, or how they think about dialogue, like this seems constantly in conversation if it's by contrast or by similarity. So uh, let's start with formal things. Cause that's what jumped out to me right away. I think from some of the first shots that I saw there, there's things that I noticed. So uh, for one thing, the, especially the interior shots of this movie are so methodically and particularly framed. Um, and it's, the way the way that I would describe it is like if you're in an interior space, it's like he starts with looking at the back wall and thinking, how do I center the back wall at the center of the frame? And then the camera is much lower to the ground. Now I feel good because I read about all this stuff afterwards, but I noticed it before. I was already figuring out like his camera's way lower than I would put it. Yeah. But I realize what that creates is um the best way I can think about it is if you are drawing, when, when, when people learn to draw and le- learn to do perspective, one of the first things you learn is one point perspective where the vanishing point is at the center of the canvas. And that's how he frames a lot of these shots. Every line converges on that center. Um, and it's, and it would be one thing if a couple shots were like that, but nearly every interior does that. Um, and it, it stands out so much. And then, and then he often will have the space exist before the characters do. So the space will be there and you'll see characters um, walk into it. Yeah, it's one reason for that. Sometimes they're called tatami height shots, right? It's one reason for that low angle because it helps to flatten the frame. And and so it makes it much more of of a 2D, almost kind of a painterly effect. And so I'm going to say right now, I'm going to make one connection. Maybe you were going to think about this, Sam, but I think about the way somebody like Wes Anderson so carefully composes his frames, right? Um, and you have to think there's a little bit of a dialogue going on here. Um, the other thing you also mentioned is, you know, Ozu's camera um, only moves once in this movie. Uh, so you have this. So that's one reason why. I mean, it took me a long time to figure out uh, that there was a second floor uh, to to the to the first house that the grandparents visit because you never see people going up or down or even in and out right you see them leave and then you see another space and they come into that space and that's another thing that um, Ozu doesn't necessarily respect you know they they can leave going to the right and they can enter going to the right he doesn't really he doesn't really follow any kind of 180 degree rule either with people's movement or with people's dialogue. Um, so it's a very different way of orienting the, the camera to space. Okay. A couple of things you said there. I also was watch watched this and thought Wes Anderson must love this movie. And then I did, I did a Google search to be like, has anybody written about this? Hundreds of people have written about if you, if you search Wes Anderson Ozu, like you'll just get this huge list of people saying comparisons of these things. So I definitely was like. I, I think that's the case. Cause that's what I thought of is like, this feels like how Wes would, would do that. Um, uh, the other thing uh, that you pointed out that I, I want to say is that the camera doesn't, like you said, about the camera not moving. And I started to realize how many filmmakers that I love, you know, I started to make a list, Scorsese, Tarantino, Fincher, Wells, Murnau, uh, Godard, Bergman, Kubrick, Spike Lee. When I think about shots that I love of theirs, it's constantly the camera moving, whether mm-hmm. it's a tracking shot or a steady cam or flying cameras or um, things like this. And it's so interesting because I loved this movie because you didn't see that. And I, and it took a while to realize like every shot is basically on a tripod locked. Um, and that's in a way that starts to feel inventive because, because it's, he's not using that trick anywhere where the camera is following somebody. It also, I think helps with perspective. Because when you when you have a tracking shot or a steady cam shot, usually it's following a person. Um, 
And then that tells you something about this is the person that I'm following. This is the character that is the center point character. And this movie's a little bit different when it thinks about when it thinks about that. Well, it, it, it's it's interesting in a way because by making you aware of the of, of the of the, the, the style, um, at the same time, Ozu kind of um, he he, avo- he avoids the way in which a lot of typical Hollywood editing conventions can manipulate the audience without being aware they're being manipulated. Right, that's one of the things that uh, Roger Ebert actually wrote at least two reviews of this film and. Uh, he talked about the fact that we're not manipulated by devices of editing and camera movement. Um, and the problem or the, the, the danger of a Hollywood film is that you become unaware of how you're being manipulated. Actually, partly because you want to be manipulated. Um, but with this film, it creates a kind of objectivity. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's, that's really an important element that Ozu is trying, is trying to bring, um, that he wants... He wants us to be able to focus not on what the camera is doing, but on what the, the people in the, in the frame are doing. So it's odd in some ways that what seems an unusual approach to reality is actually the way most of us experience reality. If you're sitting in a room talking to somebody, you're not zooming in and out. You're not circling around. You're just sitting there looking at them. Uh, and that's exactly what Ozu is going for. Absolutely. And another thing about and you had mentioned how the the way that things are framed kind of flattens the flattens the visual image um you know part of that's done through uh through also through the lenses and through the set so um i think i read that this was pretty much all shot at a with a focal length of of 50 millimeter um which which will do that right if you have a longer lens you can do the effect of like uh the foreground or something is in clear focus and everything else kind of blurs to focus in on this but he also does it through the sets because one of the things that i thought was interesting is as flat as the image is there is also like a oddly a depth of field at the same time because of the way he places elements in the in the frame so you um it's flat in that everything is in focus but you'll see things very close to the foreground you'll see people moving in the background or people aligned um really great shots of people sitting in in lines that's you know might seem unnatural if you walked into a room but they make for such a uh powerful image on the screen so and in the same way you talked about the editing of like he's not worried about conventions of continuity with movement he's also not necessarily worried about conventions of continuity with how people are how people are are sitting or even mm-hmm. as they're talking to each other they're not sitting right. looking at each other and um, so in though in those ways, he seems like a formal stylist as well. Like, this is how I want this image to look. It doesn't matter that if you walked into a room and saw this, you might think what's going on. I mean, I, I, I can't think of any conversation off the top of my head in this film, uh, Sam, that's the typical, a typical kind of shot counter shot. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's either you see everybody talking at the same time or you get a focus on an individual's face without worrying about whether the eye line is, is, is maintained. Yeah, um, yeah. And, that, and after a while, that's not really, I know, I, I feel like I adjusted to it very quickly. Um, it was strange initially, but then after a while, I didn't really notice it. Yeah, because uh, in, the, in the dialogue, it's, it's usually, like you said, it's, it's sort of the wide shot dialogue, or it is a character more or less addressing camera mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, which made me think if, if we're thinking of it made me think of like um Jonathan Demi uses this at times in a movie like Silence of the Lambs or things mm-hmm. like that, but he's using it for in v- very sparingly to focus on something um where where Ozu seems to be seems to do it there there it's not that certain characters get that every character kind mm-hmm. of gets that um so again there there is this sort of um leveling like democratic leveling in terms of characters even though it's a society that uh i mean this movie's partially about the changing in in sort of cultural and societal relationships you know so it's it's one that maybe um is is moving away from a, a little bit more uh strictly structured society in terms of the family one thing that i read that was interesting though is um and I didn't notice this until I read it, but as they visit their children, they visit them in descending order of age. Mm. And, the, and the, the person writing was like, that would seem awkward, except there's so much else happening. You don't notice that they are slowly going from mm. oldest to youngest as they, as they visit their children. Um, 
as I think about this story, uh, it's interesting because when I was reading about this movie, so that so he makes this movie in 1953. This doesn't show in the U.S. until the 70s. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is the the critique of it. The reason why the Japanese distributors aren't pushing it out is their fear is this is too Japanese of a movie. And I watched this and thought this is maybe the most universal story I've ever seen. Uh, like I didn't, if there are cultural things in it that, that like would create barriers, I didn't notice them because I was so, um, I think I was so moved by again, how, universal the ideas in this are because if you think about a movie like secrets and lies every family probably does have secrets and lies and things like this but they're so those things are so heightened in that movie when you have you know uh, a secret child who is given away for adoption who comes back in and that creates this tension and things like this this movie doesn't have have something this this movie is basically about uh people getting older (laughs) whether it's children growing up into adults, adults growing into old age, um, and then meeting their adult children. Uh, it's like, that seems like it, like that it couldn't be more universal in terms of, uh, I don't know. I mean, in terms of human experience, I think everybody can relate to that to some degree because everybody is at least a child of someone. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the movie, the, the characters don't have secrets from each other in the movie, but, but, uh, there, 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 are, there is, there are some secrets that are kind of kept from the audience, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, you you better understand why the oldest daughter Shiggy is has, seems to have a resentment towards her father because of his drinking before the younger daughter was born. So that's not a family secret, but that's a secret from us as viewers. We don't we don't understand why their interactions are the way they are until that that comes out. I would also say that. Um, as a f- parent of adult children, uh, I, I, this, this was a really interesting film, movie for me from that respect. And, uh, and in that sense, it is universal, but maybe more so for some of us who have raised kids and gotten to that point where you have to realize, well, now they're, now they're, their, own, they're their own person. Uh, they're not exactly the same relation to me as they used to be. On the other hand, we are ourselves adult children. And we know what it's like to relate to our parents. And so I think that's where the universality comes in. And I will say, we can talk a little bit more about this later, Sam, but I mean, I think there are some specific cultural things that maybe uh, an American audience wouldn't pick up on, but I don't think any of, not knowing those things are not necessarily a barrier to appreciating what the movie is doing. I mean, I'll give, right. you, a, I'll give you a recent example. I just watched the, the Japanese film, Drive My Car, with my son who spent 10 years living in Japan. And he was able to tell me some things afterwards that I didn't fully get the significance of, but I, I got the movie anyway. And I think Tokyo story works that way too. Right. And that's what any good story that is universal has is it has specifics, but then it also touches those things. Now, what's interesting is like, I don't have adult children, although I have children on the, on the verge of that. So my son will turn 18, you know, after this school year. Um, So we're about to send kids off to college, you know, a year from now. Um, but I think this seems like the kind of movie that wherever you're at, you see yourself in it. Like I can imagine, I mean, I definitely related to the children in this story so much thinking about uh, relationships with my parents and my wife's parents. And, uh, you know, like, man, I do, I feel like the oldest son in this family, you know, where, <laughs> where it's like, there's a lot going on. I'm really busy. And, you know, I get a call from my mom and it's not always the thing I most want to get because is there something I need to do? Is there something I need to go to? Or sometimes it's just to talk and it's like, you know, I really, I have a lot going on. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. It's no mistake that uh, tonight I'm going out to dinner with my parents. <laughs> I watch this movie and I'm like, I called my mom and we're going, it's just like, I just need to spend time with my parents, you know, like um, so th- it, it definitely like I could I could imagine what I'm curious about is, is, is watching if I had watched this at the age of 22, you know, where my parents would not have been seemed as old, they would have still been working, things like that. Like, would I have read this movie differently? Will I read this movie differently 20 years from now when I'm 65? You know, like that's the sign of a great text, too, is you keep you keep reading it in different ways, depending kind of on, on where you are at in your uh, in your own personal journey. 
I, I Sam, I just love your comment about having dinner with your parents because, um, you know, those of us in the humanities like to make claims for the humanizing power of art. Uh, and the, one, one critic writing about this film said that it, the movie educates the eye and educates the heart and stimulates personal and societal transformation. So I think you're exhibit A. You watch this movie, you realize I gotta have, I gotta have dinner with my parents. And, and I think that's, that's what makes it a particularly powerful piece of art when it actually has that effect on people. Yeah, I, um, the Ebert, one, at least I read one, I think I read the great movies Ebert review on this. And um, it's one of the better Ebert reviews because he's, he's re- I mean, it's very, it's very long for him yeah. and he's very passionate about this movie. Uh, and to your point, he said uh, that this movie says, yes, a movie can help help us make small steps against our imperfections because that's what this movie does. Uh, and you know, I, uh, yeah, I mean it, it, this movie, I, I read this and, and, you know, and in the words of, uh, of Rilke, this movie said, you must change your life. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's, that's yeah. So, so to me, this movie hit me really hard that way, even though I was so excited about the filmmaking stuff, I just was like, Man, he the, he really really kind of struck me uh, at the core. Um, now, what's interesting though is also this is a movie that has all of this kind of family drama to it, but at the same time, like this is a this seems like a pretty happy family. Like this is not a broken family. This is not a family where there are these deep traumas that 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 come up, and we get you know. Again, comparing this to say Secrets and Lies, that movie builds to this cathartic moment, mm. you know, where everybody has their blow up, and this movie doesn't. Um, and I think that's really interesting, right? There are no people in this movie who you look at and say, "Wow, though that that person is really monstrous." I mean, you see uh, the you know the older children not having time for their parents, but again. At least for me, I'm looking at that being like, oh, I totally relate to that. And it's not that they f- that they despise their parents. It's just they have built a life which requires so much of them, you know, and and they're not necessarily able or willing to make sacrifices in that. So so I I I find that really um interesting that I can look at each character and say their choices make sense to me without having to ascribe really awful things to them. But that, but all of those things collectively create a kind of tension. Yeah. Well, there, there there's, I, I, I don't mean, I don't mean this in a negative way, but there is almost a sense of resignation in, in, in the, in the film. Like, you know, it's, it's how many times they say, you know, it's too bad. We live so far away. Um, but at the same time, and, and so you, you do wonder, you know, what, what do the parents hope will happen as a result of this trip? You know, part of it obviously is trying to connect with the grandchildren, with the grandsons, which doesn't, doesn't really happen much at all, except for one scene that we might talk about. Um, but otherwise, I think it's more kind of an affirmation that, yeah, this is the way it is. You know, uh, you've grown up, you've made your lives. Um, you know, when families reach this point, uh, it's, it's, it's unlikely that there's going to be any huge transformation. So it's part of just kind of affirming the order, the order of things. And even, even be able to admit, as they, as, as they said at the end of the film, you know, life is disappointing. Um, you know, it's, it, so, it, so it's that, that's part, I think, of the universality of it. Because uh, I'm not saying everybody walks around disappointed. But it's just dealing with the reality of things that are not significantly going to change. Uh, but at the same time... Uh, kind of processing processing that of course there is a big change that we'll talk about at the end yeah yeah well yeah i do think about the 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 trip to tokyo which clearly they haven't made in a very long time because this is the first i think this is the first time they're meeting their grandchildren is what it sure seems like because they're getting introduced to them as if they as if they've never met and you know it, it, it what's so real about this is that people have different expectations for what this trip is about like the parents are it's a little unclear like you said um you know if they if they have not been to tokyo in a long time or haven't been at all i mean another interesting thing about this movie is for most of the movie the shots you see of tokyo doesn't seem like oh you're coming to the big city let's 
see mm. like iconic Tokyo. Like it's just sort of the neighborhood. And they even comment on like, they didn't really, they, their children don't really live in a lively neighborhood, you know, or things like that. And it's not until um, the, uh, the daughter-in-law takes them on the bus tour. That's the first time it's like, Oh, they're seeing, they're, they're seeing like what you might come to Tokyo to see. And that reminded me a little bit of playtime where you have these people coming to Paris and they're not really yeah. seeing Paris. They're, they're doing these other things. Now, the these parents have like you know a more of a goal for coming to here beyond they're not necessarily there for sightseeing or things like that but they do seem interested in that to a degree um uh, i also think it's interesting that especially the com- the conversation when the the father goes out with his buddies drinking and you have the so you have these you know older three older men talking about their children and kind of how how they're all sort of disappointed with their children to a certain degree but at the same time like they're not entirely disappointed and and like you look at you look at the like the the oldest son is a doctor now he's not a you know chief surgeon or something like that but like he has a good profession and a good home the second daughter runs her own business like like these all seem like they're successful people, but there is this also this sense of I, what I like about that scene is, is it also shows you that the father has, you know, some sense of judgment about his children as well, that it's not, he's not this like, um, uh, it's, it's not about how these kids don't have time for their sweet father, but their sweet father's not always that sweet. And then we learn a little bit more about his history and it seems like in his past, he maybe wasn't always so sweet either. Well, you know, I mean, this also ties into, a, you know, a kind of a universal impulse, which is that parents like to brag on their children, right? So the idea is you want your children to be successful, so you have something that you can kind of uh, talk up. And it's at the beginning of the film, as they're getting ready for the trip, you know, the, um, the neighbor uh, tells them how lucky they are. And, and that's, that's one of those themes, you know, we're, we're, so, we're so lucky that our children are successful. Uh, and yet then there's this worry about, well, you know, what is, what is the standard for success? Well, you know, he's only a simple neighborhood doctor. He's not really. And, and, I, think, and I think part of that is because um, I, I think there's a little bit of a social nicety going on there because I think that what's, what's happening is, um, is, is the father, you know, Shikichu, is kind of, I think, trying to um, match moods with Numata. The one who has the, the very disappointing son. So I think it's it's a, it's a little bit of a um, it's a little it's a little bit of a of a effort to be um, kind of conciliatory in, in sure. a way. So I'm not going to brag on my son because ah, after all, he really isn't all that great either. So I think there's a lot of emotional complexity going on in 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 that exchange because at one point it seems like maybe they're going to have a, a knockdown, drag him out argument, and it's so he kind of makes it. They, they both kind of pull back. Well, you know, what are you going to do about this young generation? They don't have any backbone. Yeah, but what, you know, what can you expect? So they're all kind of dealing with that other universal thing, which is, you know, the generation that comes after us, you know, they're slackers. They don't have any mm-hmm. backbone. They don't have the ambition that we have. They, didn't make, they, they don't make, it, make something themselves the way we did. And that's, you know, that's a universal uh, thing in any culture, I would imagine. And one of the things that I like about this is that we get a scene like that. We get scenes of everyone when they're together but we also get these scenes of them when they're not when they're not with their parents so so again this sort of speaks to the the point of view this this movie does not have a point of view character through which we're seeing things um so everyone is viewed from this from a kind of distance um you know and and i think that again we talked about the the way that the film is shot gives you a little bit of that distance to to sort of observe which made me think about i was reading an essay um from jasper sharp uh for for bfi the british film institute and he was quoting uh kiju yoshida who's another japanese filmmaker who was writing about ozu and he said tokyo story is not a story about tokyo but it can be read uh, as a portrait of the old couple from the perspective of tokyo so tokyo viewing them (laughs) Um, and I, and, and I, I would blow that out and say, actually it's Tokyo viewing this whole family, right? This is that, 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 that's the perspective maybe that we're, we're seeing, um, we're getting to see that this, this sort of family as a whole without, uh, 
it, it takes a while maybe for characters to be to start to really feel, you know, sympathetic to a certain degree. I, I mean, I think that the, the daughter-in-law is definitely uh, a character that you have particular sympathies for. Cause even her, um, I think sort of like, sort of like you're saying with the father trying to kind of balance things out when he's talking to his buddy, you know, when she talks about how she's not perfect, like what she has to say doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world that there are times when I don't think sure. about my dead husband. It's like, Okay, that doesn't seem as bad as as other things. Um, but but I do think that allows for this movie, as we were talking about before, to allow you to bring your perspective to it. Like we said, you know, like I think I would view this movie differently depending on my age. And I will and if I watched it again today, I might find myself feeling more like the oldest daughter or feeling more like the youngest daughter at times, you know, like like uh it is it is interesting to watch families uh whether they're real families that you're connected to if you can get some distance from them to watch that dynamic well i think this this captures a very real family dynamic in that way well i like what you said about the it's it's this tokyo's perspective on the parents because um there's there's one scene when uh when they come into uh into shige's shop and somebody wonders who they are and she won't even own them as her parents right she says they're they're friends from the country Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had a really hard time with her character. Um, she, she, she's also, she also, when, when her husband brings home the cakes for them, you know, oh, that, that, that's too good. That's too good for them. Uh, they, you know, we don't need, we don't need, we don't need to just give them crackers. They like, they like the crackers. And then of course, at the end, you know, she wants to, she's, she wants the kimono. Um, uh, but at the same time, I mean, that that that's also very realistic. I mean, you know, as you as you were talking about earlier, Sam, she has a she has a very busy life. She has a shop to run. Um, sending them off to the spa is it, it, it's, that's also interesting. Is it's both an act of kindness? I think they really hope they'll enjoy the time at the spa, uh, but it's also you know to get them out of our hair. And you know, and we've all we've all been through that, right? We've all had house guests where you're like, oh no. I don't know what to do with these people. Uh, let, 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 let's, let's have them go here and see if they like that. So again, it's all part of that um, kind of sense of we've all navigated these, sort, these sorts of waters in often kind of very, very similar ways. And even though we might not say out loud the cakes are too good for them, uh, we, we might have felt that way at times. Yeah, well, okay. So and here's one that I don't know that I fully understand. So this might be a cultural thing um, because I was – as I read, she some this character sometimes gets criticized for when they're gonna go to see the mother when she's sick. She's the one who says to her older brother, "We should probably bring mourning clothes." Mm. Because, um, but they, but she's when I read about this, she sometimes there people are critical of her for that. Where it's like, I look at that, I guess, because maybe I don't understand the meaning of that, and I think, well, she's actually somebody who's thinking pr- practically and realistically, saying we're gonna go there. If they're telling us she's critically ill, we should prepare for what we are, in essence, for our responsibility to our mother and father to be like, we need to be prepared for what this is, where the uh, the youngest or the, the daughter-in-law doesn't do that. Um, and, you know, so maybe that's viewing her as more hopeful that like the mother's mm-hmm. going to pull through. But, you know, I also think there there is something, there's kind of a, a sense that, uh, that uh, Shiji is maybe realistic too about yeah, the realities yeah. of life. Like, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're going to do this. And, and you could even read the kimono, like the kimono thing is really, um, that's pretty rough because they're, they're sitting around and, she, and she, so you can read that as she's divvying, starting to divvy up the properties, things like that. But it, it's also been a long time since she's been there. Yeah. And it may be like, I want to have something I, like I want to have something from my mother. So it's also a it, it could be read as sentimental because I'm not assuming she's going to wear her mom's clothes. Right. Right. I'm assuming it's like I want to have something from her, right. you know, um, to, to hold on to. So um, now another thing I like about this movie, I find interesting in this movie is that this is not a preachy movie at the same time. There is just like there's no big blow up. There's no major moment where characters sit around and express their regret 
mm-hmm. except for one person. The father does yes. the, the, you know, that, that he says like, you know, kind of, if I had known, I would have been kinder to her. Right? He says something like that. So he's the only one who's, who we see doing that. And I, I really appreciated that, that it, that it's, this isn't like a, um, there's not a contrived moment where we see everyone come to a realization. I actually really love the, the scene when they're sitting around the table after the, it's sort of after the funeral and it's, it's the scene where, where uh, Shiji brings up the kimono mm. and they're so, and you can tell without them saying it, you can tell they're all pondering like, okay, when do we go home? Like, like how long do we need to be here? And the, the youngest son who, I feel like I've aged out of of um, seeing this movie through his eyes, but I think there was a time that I would have. Uh, uh, Kizo is sort of like, well, you know, I can leave tomorrow, but like, why am I waiting till tomorrow? If I took the train today, <laughs> I could go do this. And then it's also like, and then I could go to that the the ball game too. And and he's sort of like, so you're seeing the them wrestling with like, okay, when is moving on happening? How long are we supposed to do this? Um, yeah, I, I, I found that scene really great without, uh, um, without it be that even being too heavy handed. And maybe that's cause that's all shot at a distance too. Right. Right. And, and, and it also deals with this, with the simple fact that no matter how much you love someone and no matter how much, how much you miss someone when they're gone, life does continue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it, again, it seems to me that it's part of that, of that realism. And that's, that's, I think that's why you have that really significant conversation at the end between, between um, uh, uh, Kyoko and, uh, and, and Noriko about, you know, where Kyoko is so disappointed in her, in her siblings. Um, and, and you get Noriko's kind of more uh, realistic view of, of of life, and I think that that's that that's a really important dialogue that goes on between the two of them, and talking about you know how she you know uh, Kyoko wants to say I, I will I will never be that way, and, and Noriko says well you know I used to say that about myself, but the fact is you you do change, and that's that's sort of the way that's sort of the way life works. Um, so I think that that's to me that's that's really the key element of what's going on in that scene is kind of saying you know you can't. You can't expect people to behave in a way that people actually don't behave. Uh, and this is actually the way, the way people, people behave. Another thing that I really loved relationally is I loved the, the relationship between the parents and especially in the moments when they were alone. Um, and, and it, cause it, I mean, it reminds me of thinking about my own parents, my brother and I, have, I mean, we've been out of the house for 20 years and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I guess this is, this is my self-centeredness that, you know, I tend to view the world through my perspective and I sort of forget that other people's lives are going on, but we get these little snippets of the two of them navigating the world together. And there's something really beautiful about that. And I, then I think about my own parents and it's like, that's, there are scenes like that, that happen with my own parents all the time that I never see because for them to happen. I can't be there, but, but it's like, like I was really moved by those. Um, and it's, there's nothing in particular that they say that's, that's significant to that, but just that he showed those scenes of them in a strange place, whether it's, you know, they're, they're getting ready for bed in their son's house or when they're at the, um, the spa trying to figure out, well, do we stay here? Do we leave? Um, I found those quiet moments between the two of them, very real and very affecting. And I think that's why that it is the two of them when when Ozu finally moves the camera, mm-hmm. right? They get this they get a tracking shot, and it comes around the wall, and there they are. They've come back from the spa. They're trying to make up just to make it their plans for what they're going to do next. And then the tracking shot actually continues for a little while as they stand up and 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 walk away. And that and that's a really key point because that's also when they go their separate ways. And he has his encounter with his drinking buddies, and she has the. Uh, the, the evening with with Noriko. So I think that that is how. Um, okay, this this is what Paul Schrader would call it, would, would, would see as an element of transcendental filmmaking, right? Because it's it's not the content; it's the form that, that creates a particular feeling. And so when Ozu moves that camera, and I don't even think there's music that goes along with it, if I recall, when Ozu moves that camera, there's an effect on the audience when you suddenly see the couple sitting there, and that and that kind of takes you into a different a different mind space. And uh, and I think that that's that's why it's 
at that point in the film that you kind of they it's it's almost though they get highlighted uh mm -hmm. and and that and that's their real really their story right and then and then that adds such an impact to him being alone at the end yes you know and then there's that there's that great shot of the he's sitting there and this is where that that depth of of field even in that flat image is so cool when the the other older woman walks by the window and pops in and and it's in like she's not there to offer any kind of salvation or a hand into a different world but it's just like this is what it is you know and he's and he's sort of use that word resignation he's sort of resigned to like well this is this is life now my life had been with my wife she and i as we grow old now this is me um and it's 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 poignant and 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 kind of beautiful um another thing that i really found interesting about this movie and this is probably a whole nother conversation we could have is the specifics of setting this in 1953 in japan mm -hmm. you know um because you get a modernizing japan yeah. a westernizing japan uh and i i didn't get a chance to watch this movie a second time this week but i, I want to go back and pay attention to again objects in the frame that he's putting in there because uh very often you'll see things that are um, coming from a non-Japanese cultural perspective. So in um, in uh, Noriku's apartment, I noticed there was a box of something in the background and what it said on it was in English. Like it was a product in mm. English. Um, and uh, when you're at uh, Kizo's apartment, there's like a baseball jersey hanging up in the background. You know, and, so to, and I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm assuming that's indicating his westernness to a certain degree and then the biggest one is when uh when noriko's at work there's a shot where he takes that though that western item and puts it as the thing closest in the foreground there's this tire that says bridgestone on it and it's and it's like it, it's like that's his moment to slam you over the head of like this there is there is there are outside things coming into this world which are potentially part of changing this world so it's it's set at this moment when um when these things are changing, when these things are changing in a post-war, uh, post-war Japan. Well, I think that's that's actually um, one of Ozu's characteristic themes that um, work and modernization, you know, are kind of destroying the traditional Jap Japanese family. Um, and I think there's also a good time to point out a couple of things we haven't talked about, and that is why do the couples why does the couple travel from Onamichi to to Tokyo? Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's about the same distance, roughly the same distance as from Minneapolis to Chicago. Uh, it's it's a, a little farther. But Onamichi is, is actually not an accidental choice because um, it's kind of been known in Japanese culture for at least 100 years as kind of Japan's hometown. Uh, Japanese see it as kind of the quintessential small town. Uh, it's got a harmony between, it, it's on the inland sea in the southern, western, southern part of, southwestern part of Japan. Uh, it's got this nice harmony, harmony, harmony between the sea and the mountain, between uh, man and nature, uh, human beings and nature. And maybe most significantly, it's a very Buddhist town. Uh, there's 25 temples uh, in Onamichi, and there's a whole temple walk you can do. And so this also brings me to another stylistic element with so Ozu, and that is his so-called pillar shots. Uh, that is the shots of, usually it's exteriors. Um, and when you're at Onamichi, uh, there's a lot of shots of the, there's shots of the, of the temples or the temple lanterns. And you often see those in the background of the, uh, when you're at their home in Onamichi. Whereas the, uh, the pillar shots involving Tokyo are usually smokestacks. Uh, sometimes it's trains. Uh, he also loves the pillow shots of clo of white clothing on 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 the on the clothesline and people running in in the in the distance. So that's again, it's a way. It's not it's not a traditional establishing shot, but it's his version of an establishing shot. Um, and the same way that he preserves the interior spaces, he has these exterior spaces. And there's always this reminder that there are these cycles. There's this there's this order of nature. Uh, that keeps on keeps on going, and sometimes the sense of this order is actually human as well, because you have the putt putt of the boats in the harbor. Uh, you hear them in the background uh, when they're gathered around the mothers, uh, when the mothers in her coma, and then a corpse, and you hear it's almost like a clock ticking. You hear pop 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 from the boats, 
Um, nothing's going to happen with those boats, but they're kind of there because as much as possible, Ozu is trying to show you the whole world. Uh, and I think that's one of the ways in, in which in which he does it. Yeah, that's really that that that's that's interesting. And I remember the first couple times I saw those in the movie, I was confused by like, what? Okay, why? Why is he showing us smokestacks? What is that supposed? But then as the movie goes on, you start to like realize, oh, this is a theme we're coming back to. Another thing that I found interesting in terms of thinking of this in 1953 is that I love how this movie is haunted by the war without a lot of conversation about the war. I mean, there's uh, we're talking about. Well, this is like eight years post yeah. uh post post World War II. So um people aren't talking about it, but but their lives are impacted by it. And you, you see this most in the conversation at the bar when they're talking about the sons that didn't live. Yeah. Um, because the one guy I think has no 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 sons left, right? And and right. um and you know, he obviously uh Noriko's son is uh is dead. Um, and then that that sets up her relationship to this family, which, you know, that she's still connected to this family, even though she's not a blood relative um, to this family. And it reminds me of one of my favorite writers of this exact time period, um, which is the best of of J.D. Salinger's writing. Mm. Salinger fought in World War II. I mean, he was in the thick of fighting in Europe and he never writes almost never writes explicitly about the war, but it haunts everything that he writes. Every story, if you pay attention to the edges, there is people impacted by the war, people traumatized. There's a gap. There are gaps in families because of the war, dead brothers or things like this. So I, I, I loved how that it's something I love in Salinger's writing. And it's, and I feel like like this movie has that as well. Um, and then there is, and then that leads to all these conversations about like, what is, what is Noriku's responsibility? What is her responsibility to her dead husband, to this family? And that you have both the mother and the father separately saying like, I, I think you should go be happy. You know, I think you should go, you should go, you should move on where, and it's interesting because it's the, she's not the one saying that, but it's the parents saying, you know, and I wonder if that's a, um, an inversion of maybe traditional cultural things that Nariku is actually fulfilling her traditional role as, well, I'm a daughter-in-law to this family, even if my husband dies, so I have these responsibilities. And it's the parents who are maybe expressing a more modern view of like, actually, maybe you should just move on. Is, is that a correct read of that? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. Um, I also want to say, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll make a, a, another strange connection to Tokyo Story because in the same year Tokyo Story came out, George Stevens' Shane came out. And, and when we mm -hmm. talked about Shane, we talked a little bit about Shane in a, in a very subtle way, actually being a comment on, on Stevens's war experience. So I really, I, I agree with you. I, I like the way that the war um, casts a, sh a very dim, a very definite shadow over the film. Of course, the other element of that is what you observed earlier, and that is uh, the various items uh, in, in English uh, and, the, and the, uh, the impact of the American occupation uh, on Japan as well. Um, uh, anything else you want to talk about? I just have one or two little items, but yeah, I guess th there's, there's a couple of things I want to, I, I want to say a little bit about, um, uh, a recurring comment in the film. It comes up a couple different times. It comes up when the, uh, I think it comes up when the guys are drinking together and then it comes up again at the funeral. And that is the comment that, uh, be a good son while your parents are alive. No one can serve his parents beyond the grave. Hmm. And, and what I find interesting about that is I think it's I think it's Keizo that actually brings it up um, at the at the, the the Buddhist funeral when he can't stand the sound of the, of the drumming anymore. Um, but what's interesting is okay, so that's that's a traditional Japanese proverb that's telling you how you should behave. Um, but he leaves early anyway. So so it's so it's almost again I think it's it's part of Ozu again talking about. Some of the ways in which the traditional Japanese values have kind of lost their, their grip on, on modern Japan. The other thing I think is important to talk about is we've talked a little bit about the difference between Ozu and Hollywood filmmaking. It's not only the things that he shows, but the things that he, that he doesn't show. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you don't see the mother's illness. You don't even see the moment of the mother's death. Um, I think it's interesting to note that this is 1953. She's in a coma at home. She's not, she's not in a hospital. Uh, you don't see the parents move from one house to the other in Tokyo. Suddenly, kind of, they're there. 
Uh, you don't see, you know, Shige dealing with the drunken men uh, after they come home. She's going to deal with them. You don't see it. You don't. I mean, there's just so many things in this in this film that that happen that in a different kind of film would have been sort of the center of, of a really, you know, dramatic scene. And instead, Ozu, Ozu doesn't care about what well, he does care about. What he cares about is the aftermath. He cares about the impact of what's happened. He doesn't have to show you what's happened. He wants to, so, so instead of showing us the Tomi's illness, we get Keizu saying, oh, what a mess, such a bother. That's, that's what's important about that event. So I just love the way, against one more way in which he goes against the, the, uh, the, the, a little bit against the grain of Western filmmaking. The one, the one concession I see him making to traditional plot is when Tomi uh, stumbles a bit on the wall um you know and you know you know something that that's not a good thing but otherwise he doesn't do any of that uh, kind of foreshadowing stuff absolutely uh yeah i mean the only other thing i had was uh, was the wes anderson um connection that uh that i definitely saw and it it made me think about like is now this is a ridiculous statement i'm gonna make but like is the royal tenenbaums wes anderson's tokyo story (laughs) like is that that's I was trying to think like what's the closest thing he made to yeah. so I like I think that actually would be a really fascinating pairing to watch you know if you were if you were doing a double feature to to do those two would be interesting in lots and lots of ways. Well, I'm sorry I didn't think of that, Sam. <laughs> that would have been a good idea for next week, but that wasn't where I was going. All right, so um, before you tell us the movie for next week, I want to point something out to you because I've been tracking this. So this is our 110th film. Mm. We watched a hundred films. Uh, and I felt like, wow, what an, like we watched so many great movies and I was just like, I've been so amazed in the last 10 movies. We've watched four that I feel like are top 10 movies. I don't know how you like did a hundred and then you're like, well, now I'm going to share this other. So you were definitely holding out on me. Cause in the last 10 movies, we've watched Murnau's sunrise. We watched spirited away playtime and Tokyo story. That's a lot for the last 10 films. It's been pretty amazing. So I, I, yeah, I, I commend you for for doing a hundred and then saying, and now I'm going to give you these. <laughs> well, maybe we'll, hopefully, hopefully I'll come up with a few more. <laughs> so, what do you have for next week? Uh, you're going to hear the gears grind when we shift into this one because this is completely completely different. Um, we're going to do we're going to do a run of um, of uh, bank robbery films. Oh, cool. I have no no I have no justification other than I wanted to change a pace. Actually, I do have a justification. You got me thinking about this when you gave me Mark Harris's uh, Pictures of Revolution. Um, so I want to start with one of my favorite B movies, um, 1950s Gun Crazy, uh, directed by Joseph H. Lewis. Um, I I love I love a really good B movie, uh, and I think this fits the bill. So I don't think you're going to come back next week and say this movie changed your life, Sam. But I, I think you, I think you'll enjoy it. That, that's, I'm so excited. I've never heard of this movie, so like I, I, that's that's even better is something that I don't uh, that I don't didn't know of. Um, so I'm excited for that. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this. This is a movie that had been on my list for a long time, and I and this gave me a reason to watch it. And uh, there's a, there are a few movies that I sort of knew without a doubt I was going to love. And so it was fun. It's fun to go into those feeling like there's no way I'm not going to love this movie and this delivered on every account. So thanks for recommending it. Thank you for this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about gun crazy in the video series.